One child behind. This is Winning Slowly, taking the long view on technology, religion, ethics, and art. Because doing good work takes time. I'm Chris Kreitcho. And I'm Stephen Caradini. This is Season 4, Episode 12, and today we're going to talk about the European Union versus the Internet, or what is Internet freedom? It's a good question. I know. This is the second of two special episodes we're recording live with a second class of students at North Carolina State University. So just like we did in 4.11, we'll be hearing from students later in the episode. So today, we're going to shift a little bit from talking about individual countries and globalization and the way that countries interact. And we're going to talk about a supranational organization. I may or may not have practiced that, (laughs) which is the European Union. So there are various supranational organizations throughout the world, NATO, various trade alliances. These things are usually specific to a particular trade pact or a particular regional area or a particular concept or concern. However, the European Union is one of the largest supranational organizations and it has a variety of areas that it touches. It has to do with economics. It has to do with shared governance in some ways. It has to do with borders. It has to do with a whole bunch of things that we've talked about in previous episodes and, and we'll talk about in the future. But in this specific instance, we're going to talk about how the European Union relates to the internet. Um, and this is a particularly fascinating concept because in some ways, Europe has had the internet longer than we have. And in other ways, they have had it less time than we, being Americans, have had it. Right. So- So a little history. The internet, as many of our listeners, but not all will know, actually predates what we often think of as the internet by many decades. It came out of research projects in universities, really going back to the 50s and especially the 60s. And because of those projects, which were mostly nationally funded, both in the United States and in Europe, there are networks that go back that really are part of what is now the network. Things like ARPANET, you'll hear if you go looking at history. And Milner. And Milnet and some of these others. And in Europe, those turned into something that you can think of as a proto-web in certain places at certain times. Specifically, France, with its Minitel service, had basically a proto-worldwide web that actually still had millions of subscribers in 2009 that was based on their phone line system. And they had that in the 80s. It substantially predated the advent of the World Wide Web, which was invented by Tim Berners-Lee when he he was working at CERN, which is a large physics research institute in Switzerland. Which is actually in Europe, even though America claims the internet. <laughs> it's it complicated. Weird. But this advent of the World Wide Web in the 1990s and the rapid development of industry around it in America has led to America sort of thinking we own the internet. Let's be honest, America sometimes thinks that about everything. But what? <laughs> no. I know. Say it isn't no. so. We have a fairly provincial view of how people think of and use the internet in some ways. What? I know. We talked about this at some length in our discussion of India and 
net neutrality and internet mm -hmm. service and mm -hmm. Facebook back at the very beginning of the season. But where things start to get funky today, funky is a technical term, of course, of course. is Europe's approach to laws about the internet is just a little bit different than America's. America has what I like to call a libertarian, anarcho-capitalist, utopian vision of the internet. And we think that the internet brings freedom to everyone everywhere and should never be subject to any laws at all, ever. Europe doesn't really think that way. Sort of. Yeah, yeah I, 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 I say that. I'm being hyperbolic. Parts of the U.S. definitely think definitely. that way. And parts of the internet, significant parts of yes. the internet and people who are on the internet. And so it's interesting to contrast these two because America's development of the internet and Europe's development of the internet had very different paths, particularly as it relates to Minitel and to the decidedly non-profit yeah. aspirations of the early internet from Tim Berners-Lee. They developed in ways where people said we should be able to do whatever we want in America, whereas in Europe, the government it was just part of what was happening. Like It was just part of the way that the government was policing various things like telecommunications. So there is a, a structural historical difference in how people have treated the internet. Now, this is particularly interesting because that particular difference changes how the policies that are being put in place now by the EU for various topics, which we'll talk about in a minute. Those historical elements have changed how things happen now and will change how things happen in the future. And if we don't think about the ways that things have developed in Europe versus the, how they've developed in America, we will have no understanding of how the European Union thinks that some things are a good idea, that America thinks are a bad idea, and, <laughs> and how, vice versa. And vice versa. So let's just jump into it. Right. So one of the most high-profile things that has come out of Europe is the idea that you could tack link. Now, if, if you're listening to this and you know how the internet works, that might seem kind of strange to you. But it wouldn't be the first time that a political entity has decided to do something kind of strange. Yes. I refer you to the Digital Millennium and Copyright Act here in the United States. Right. These things, though, derive from these histories. Dare I say it, context matters. As we often say. The history of national ownership and legislation about use of the internet in Europe is just sufficiently different from how it is in the United States that the idea of using tax as a regulatory measure on the internet about what large companies like, say, Google can do when you're concerned about monopolies and monopsonies and the kinds of effects that ha come from having a sole provider of a service or someone who just so completely dominates a market that they're basically the only provider of a place you can sell things, which in Google's place would be ads. Mm -hmm. but And search itself. And search itself. Uh, they've had a functional near monopoly on search proper. And until the advent of really effective ad placement on social media, like Facebook, they also had something of a monopsony, a sole control of the market for internet advertising for a long time. And in the US, well, in a lot of cases, we haven't necessarily cared so much if companies get big. We have tended to care if they do things we think are abusive with that power. So the classic example in this broad space is Microsoft trying to run other browser vendors out of business by the way they dealt with Internet Explorer in the late 1990s. And they came in for a federal lawsuit and had to do certain things in response to that. Well, Europe 
Phillips' approach to anti-monopoly legislation and prosecution looks a little different. Yeah. They're much more likely to go after someone just for being big, whereas we in America are often apt to say, well, I mean, that's just what you get for being the best at it. And Google has pretty unarguably been the best at it. Mm -hmm. They're looking at that and saying, well, it's great that you're the best at it, but you're now making it impossible for anyone to come on and compete with you, and we don't think that's good. We think that hurts the market. We think that is not even good for your customers, so we're and, going to go after you. And there's also an element where Google is an American company, and it's not a European company, and so there's some national sort of economic protectionism there that if you're coming in and stomping all over this business that we could otherwise have French corporation or a Belgian corporation doing, you know, we want to make sure that our people are not being abused by some other nation's company, whereas America... We would never do that in America. Never do that. And so America is <laughs> like, hey, Google did their thing, they're, it's, they won, and so therefore, you know, that's fine. If we don't understand Europe's regulatory history, them going after Google monopolistically will look a little weird in comparison to America, which every now and then is like, we should do something about Google. Okay. Actually, Google's kind of awesome. Never mind. All right, never mind. And that's pretty much as far as policy on Google and monopoly goes, even though it's almost prima facie the largest monopoly that exists in, <laughs> in the world. The, the flip side of this coin is the taxing thing um, that Chris brought up briefly. In America, we, we see uh, links as a citation. It is a citing mechanism. It allows things to be referenced back and forth in the same way you would cite something in a book. And so that's how we view links. And they are not copyrightable. They don't transfer uh, copyright. Um, they cannot be monetized. Links are merely mechanistic connectors. Right. In Europe, because of various ways that their culture has developed, they don't see it that way. They see them as copyrightable issuances of people's content. So if you use a link, you're using their content and you deserve to get copyright benefits from that. And that's just very different than the way that the American copyright system works. We're not defending the American copyright system, nope. to be clear, but... <laughs> But it works differently in Europe, and the expectations of copyright in Europe are very different. Right. So where in some cases Europe has a, a good idea about how things work that could never take place in America, they also sometimes have a bad idea of how things could work that would never take place in America. Right. And so we come at this and we end up with sort of these, on, for example, the taxing links idea. You might have sort of the American uh, anarcho-capitalist ideas about the internet or sort of uh, utopian hippie ideas about the internet. Either way, freedom means don't tax links. Come on, that's silly. The European stance, especially as regards Google, has occasionally trended toward this is not a good thing. We have these expectations about how things should behave. Tax it as a regulatory approach. Uh, we actually think that taxing it is a kind of bad idea because it just doesn't work at a technical level for both the, the pragmatic reasons of like we need a way to cite things that don't confer copyright because that's kind of important for the basic functioning of free communication of information that's a thing. But also because of what happened when they did try to do that to Google for a while, and companies tried to sue Google for listing their search results without paying them, and Google said, well, we'll just stop listing your search results. Listeners with some familiarity with how modern companies get traffic to their websites might be able to anticipate how this went. Namely, within a few months, the companies were going, Google, can you please list us back on? We, we don't mind. Really, you don't have to pay us. Yeah. Practically, that idea didn't work so well. So the one area where there's some overlap between kind of the EU mentality towards the internet and the American mentality towards the internet is in the issue of censorship. So the ideas of censorship in the internet in both places are kind of mixed yeah. in that um, there are people on some sides of the spectrum in America saying we need to censor certain things because it would be good 
for America. And there are people on the other side who are saying any censorship anywhere is bad cutscene. Like there's nothing <laughs> but badness there. We're done. Similarly in Europe, there are these sorts of, of things where in Sweden, where they offered the creator of WikiLeaks Sanctuary, they have a very different perspective on the internet than someplace like Britain, where they have a, a seemingly unending stream of <laughs> laws designed to erode privacy. Right. Um, and so there's there's some variation there as well. And then, of course, within each individual uh, country, there are fringe parties here and there. The Pirate Party is one of my favorites <laughs> um, that pops up Arr. throughout places in Europe. I think it was originally in Sweden and has come up in other countries. And so there is some variation between how people think about censorship. And there is very good reasons for that. In some cases, things like child pornography. Some people say, hey, we should just always censor that. That is not anything that's valuable ever. Right. Um, some people think that, again, this is a freedom of speech issue and that you have to let things through. And so, you know, there there is a lot of, of divergence there. And so even To be if, clear, Stephen and I have a stance on that, and it's not the... Uh, it, yeah. It, sometimes we say, there are two sides to an issue, and we're not sure which one we land on. Child pornography is bad. Yeah. Next? Yeah. We, we, are, we are willing to say that child pornography should be censored and have that people disagree with us, and that's fine. They're wrong. Um, but there are some areas where, even with different histories, there are overlapping areas of yeah. agreement. So it is an interesting sort of argument to look at these various histories. And we're just looking at the EU right. versus America. If you look at the history of India and the internet, and the history of Japan, and the history of Australia, you find very different situations that have to do with local and regional and uh, supranational right. boundaries. And so that's... as we roll in towards the end of our globalization season here, uh, that's one thing that we are intimately aware of is that we're talking about EU versus America here, but everywhere has a different history that has a different sort of results. And we're not going to have a totally integrated, totally flat internet anytime soon. Right. China's is going to look different. And it looks Sudan, very different. Yeah, <laughs> already does. And South Sudan's or Namibia's or anywhere else in Africa's right. is going to differ both from each other's and from China's and from Europe. Right. And, and so you can't just flatten that out. But you can say, well, given these contexts, maybe these things make sense. And yet, still, we might think that taxing links is bad, but also that maybe being a little more proactive about disincentivizing monopolies is a good plan. Now, whether you think that the best way to do that is via taxing, well, maybe we're going to go back to disagreeing. And maybe there are ways that aren't even legal or political at all to disincentivize that. Again, As we a talked theme, about last week. Yeah, we talked about in our last episode and that we talk about often. But nonetheless, one of the things that would be handy is to look and say, what are the things we do differently? And what can we learn from each other? What are the things that France is doing better than the US? Mm -hmm. What are the things that the US is doing better than Germany? What what are the things that Switzerland is doing better than Bavaria? And you know, those kinds of conversations are often enlightening just because those differences in context and history, differences in culture and governance make for different outcomes. And mm -hmm. sometimes those are as close as we can get to running sort of controlled experiments and saying, mm -hmm. what if we had taken a different course in history? I don't have a TARDIS. I can't go back in time and change the course of history and see how it would have played out. What up, nerd reference? That's right. But we can sometimes look and say, oh, hey, Britain treated its telecom industry rather differently from the US, and they've had pretty good success in last loop unbundling and all the things that go with that, which we've referred to occasionally in previous seasons of the show. And we will actually someday Talk really about actually put a 
medium post out we swear it, it's coming kind of in editing it's coming. kind of yeah but that kind of thing would allow us to say hey these these folks over here actually figured out something better than we did we can learn from it and mm -hmm. that allows us to avoid the kind of provincialism that Stephen and i have been arguing against right. all season right so at this point, we want to open it up to questions from y'all. So if you just have a general question, you can raise your hand, ask it. We also have uh, a couple questions that we're interested in hearing from you, particularly, what do you think about these issues? Because there's a lot of different variation. Yep. And also, how does thinking about tech being used in various countries or in various regions um, change how we think about the tech that we use? So you guys talked about variants within the European Union. Obviously, mm -hmm. that was created so you could have free travel, same mm -hmm. currency, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So say many in Britain like to retire and they go to Malaga, Spain. Are they going to mm -hmm. have the same internet laws? What's, is there a variance? Mm -hmm. Big variance? What's, what's that mm -hmm. like? Yeah. So that is a really great question about the uh, sort of digital version of the Schengen Accord, <laughs> yeah. um, which sort of exists. They want to they they want to move in that direction, but they because of their their very different backgrounds, there is still a lot of variation. And so they're uh, uh, without with I mean, Spain is a mess. So <laughs> yeah. saying anything conclusively about Spain is is yeah. probably going to be wrong by the time that this podcast comes out. So. <laughs> But um, it is, you can look at, for example, France and England, and they do have pretty substantially different laws, even there. Now, there there is some overlap because there is some shared legal structure around especially copyright issues across the EU. But a lot of the variations that we might see between England and the US, even, you're going to see similar degrees of variation between England and France or France and Italy or so on, because the EU has some teeth to it. Well, but it there's is, always a discussion yeah. about how much it should have, thus the upcoming discussion among Britain, whether they should even stay in the mm -hmm. EU and so on. Mm -hmm. And I think there's also, since it is a supranational, but sort of collective organization, various factions argue about these things mm -hmm. and say, we should have this type of law, or we should not have this type of law. And one of the ongoing arguments in the EU is always, how much power are we ceding to the EU and how much do we get to make locally? And so the, the party lines change, well, the people who are in each party change pretty frequently, but often it ends up being the small countries want to have well no i can't even say that because it change <laughs> it changes so frequently but there there are often arguments about who should be making the laws for who right and so i think ultimately they would want to get there but i think they're definitely not there yet right and there's an interesting analogy there to actually things in u.s politics looking at alternate histories again there are a lot of analogies between sort of the local versus supranational control in the eu with discussions about how much authority should should be at the state versus the federal level in the U.S. And they have taken very different courses. Yep. But there's a lot of interesting points of feedback and places to look for. You know, they actually get to iterate faster at a local level there in some ways mm -hmm. than we do if we've nationalized certain concerns and right. vice versa. They might right. be slowed down by certain things. So it, again, even outside the internet, there are some interesting points of analogy and points to examine. Mm -hmm. That's a great question. Great question. Yeah. Yeah. Go yeah. On. I guess my, uh, my first one is... One of the, I guess, buzzwords I kept hearing you guys use was monopoly, and that was kind of one of mm -hmm. the arguments for why um, intervention should be argued for in certain uh, countries and places. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the examples you guys really tied in with that was Google. Mm -hmm. And um, the way I've always understood monopoly to work is it is a business or structure that prevents any other businesses from entering that same market. Yes. Um, and so how exactly does Google... 
uh, fit that description, assuming my assumption is correct. Sure. Um, yeah. And how, how exactly does Google fit the description of a monopoly? Right. That's a great question. Chris and I will have different answers to this question, actually, <laughs> so he'll go first. Oh, now I'm surprised uh, because I didn't know we were going to have different answers. Well, you're going to say monopsony, and I'm going to say structural boundaries. So <laughs> am I wrong? We'll, uh, no, yeah, you say monopsony, of. I'll say structural boundaries. So I think it comes down to two things, and one of them is that it's possible to have a functional monopoly in that you can have so much power in the market that even though things like DuckDuckGo or Bing exist, you can still dominate the market. And search engine optimization, for example, nobody really cares about gaming being much less DuckDuckDo. What you're positioning in those search results is irrelevant. And so you can argue, and the European Union has argued, whether whether I totally agree with them or not, and I don't, but their argument has been that Google has a functional monopoly, and they are using that to prevent players from entering other parts of the market. For example, their use of travel data to drive people to using their services rather than using say, travel sales tools that someone else might. And so that's a place where they might actually have a functional monopoly and be using it to better their own other product rather than bettering just that product. And so that's one line of the argument. The other is in the sales question, if you have a sufficiently large place, and again, this has changed somewhat as Facebook has come onto the scene and really provided in some ways a much more effective means of advertising. But there was a long period of time where Google's AdWords marketing was the only game in town. Nobody else was even worth spending money on. And they really did have what is called a monopsony, which is the only market. So they could have what we might describe as tariffs on that market. They could set the prices to their advantage. They could make moves that debilitated other players who wanted to come in and advertise, etc. And so that's where they would have a second kind of monopolistic thing in the form of owning the only market. Now, for Steven's side of it, though... Yeah. So I mostly agree with the things that Chris has said, particularly the first point, because the ability of someone to start a search engine is significantly decreased by the existence of Google and its giantness. Right. So the ability for me to start a search engine today um, would be significantly decreased. Now, in America, we're like, well, bummer, man. Like, that's <laughs> that means that Google's better than you. But in, in Europe, and in some ways, to the detriment of, of what they feel European companies are, there's not even a way that people can start to break into the market anymore, that Google has so entirely captured it that even if you made one, it would go out of business. Even if it were better than Google. Even if it were better than Google, it would go out of business based on the fact that it could never gain traction because Google is so large. So it's it's not that Google is actively prohibiting, which is what America would go after. So like um, if Google was manipulating search results, <coughs> then we might have to go after them. Um, but they're not actively like attacking someone else. However, by being so incredibly large, they have crowded everyone else out of the market, even from being able to start up with a better stone. So that's what I mean by structural boundary. Yeah, and I agree with that summary. Oh. Yeah. Okay. And then I guess my uh, second question is kind of on a different note, uh, but it's more about um, policies changing across nations. Mm -hmm. um, for example, we have a lot of American-based companies that allow communication worldwide. Mm -hmm. Be that Facebook or a gaming platform like Steam mm -hmm. operating system, anything like that. Love Steam. Um, <laughs> so how how are policies affected if an American student or uh, young adult is using a program like Facebook or Steam and communicates something questionable to someone in, say, England, which has stricter views, right. um, and how is that handled by the two governments? <laughs> 
That is a great question. I, I, I said I feel like breakdancing. Like <laughs> I just that question is great. Um, yeah, that is a, a total headache and a total question. And it's there. There really isn't a way to qualify it on a non basis, individual basis by individual basis. Because right. like there's going to be way different rules about child pornography than there are going to be about various sectarian groups in Ireland and Scotland and yep. uh, Britain be just because of the nature of the local concerns. So kind of the, the situation in those individual countries affects how people coming from outside, so traffic coming in from outside, um, is perceived in that country. And it can go really badly. Yeah. And to give credit to the people on the other side of the argument from me that I was giving a hard time earlier, one of the reasons that people do get contentious about the child pornography one is because that involves figuring out and inspecting everything that comes through to figure out what the traffic is. Well, you can imagine that there are some pretty substantial concerns about privacy in doing that. That mean, Because if you're going to do it well enough to figure out that you've got something like that coming through, you can probably also know everything else going on on that connection. And so... It doesn't It doesn't always include bit sniffing. Sometimes it includes taking over a very large porn website. Yes, and running there is it. that way too. Uh, the FBI did that? <laughs> the FBI did do that. <laughs> Uh, yeah. I'm not sure that's the best way to go about it. But yeah, the the thing is, there are trade-offs there, and they're hard, and different countries are making those in interesting ways. So to take an example that's outside Europe or the United States, but within the Americas, mm -hmm. a few weeks ago, Brazil arrested one of Facebook's executives because they're in the middle of trying to work through an encryption case that is not terribly dissimilar in some ways to some of the recent kerfuffle and debroglio we've had around around the Apple iPhone unlocking issues with the FBI, they said to Facebook, which owns WhatsApp, one of the most popular messaging platforms out there, hey, we want this data that went across WhatsApp and you need to give it to us. And Facebook said, WhatsApp has end-to-end -end encryption. We literally can't. We would cooperate with you as we do with law enforcement in general, but we literally can't. It's not possible. The rules of math make it literally impossible. No one can do that, including us. We and don't Earl's care about the rules of math. <laughs> Right. Brazil just said, we don't care. And they arrested a Facebook executive over it because their laws are such that Facebook is obliged to do that under their legal scheme. Now, math might have something to say about it, and I think Brazil will eventually have to deal with that. But that's why laws about cryptography are very much in the news now here mm -hmm. with regards to the Apple iPhone unlocking scenario. Because if you say, no, you can't do this, then you think at least you have an avenue of blocking that even from being a scenario. But again, all somebody has to do is use a service that's provided from outside your country. And so then you're thinking, okay, now I have to block every app that's made from outside my country that might use encryption, or I need to block math from outside my country. <laughs> the U.S. actually did try to make it illegal to export the algorithms that are used to provide encryption back in the 1990s. And everybody who actually understands math just indulged in about five <laughs> years of face palming at the U.S. government's expense because you can't outlaw the transfer of math. It doesn't work. And the U.S. government eventually figured that out. It's just not a thing you can actually do. And that tension continues to exist and will continue to exist because, well, some countries still think you can outlaw the transfer of math. But more than that, there are things that don't have to do with just the transfer of math knowledge, as you highlighted, that get at these fundamental questions. And you start, when you're dealing especially with a supranational
professional organization mm -hmm. like the EU turn into thorny legal issues like, okay, maybe it's illegal in France, but it's legal in Germany, and maybe you have a conversation between someone in France and in Germany. Is the person in Germany legally liable under French laws because of something about the way that the EU is organized? Who knows? Well, I have no idea what the answer is, because I don't know European Union law. But those things, especially as we continue to engage in digital commerce and digital information sharing across these boundaries using platforms that may not be based in either country mm -hmm. involved. Re-Ghost. Right. Ghost is based in Singapore financially and stores its data in Amsterdam, and its founders live variously in Egypt and England today. Where is Ghost again? Well, it's everywhere, and it's yep. nowhere. And those things are just going to keep coming up. So it's a great question, and we don't really have good answers yet. Although there is also, you mentioned Steam, and Steam continues to impose the Australia tax for no apparent reason. <laughs> we're like, Steam games are just more expensive in Australia because you live really far away from... No, 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 that's not how it works. <laughs> so so there are some elements where it's like kind of arbitrarily stupid. <laughs> yeah, There's, that's a good summary. So some of these things are deeply important and entrenched in the nature of how the internet works. Some are just stupid. <laughs> um, and some of them are just going to keep being stupid for a while. Sorry, Australia, I apologize. And, and some of it has to do a lot with with educating people who didn't grow up with the internet but are in political authority about how these things actually work. So in like 40 years, this isn't going to be a problem. It's going to be fine, right? <laughs> Gee, I wouldn't go that far. All right. This may seem like a far-fetched question. But we'll talk <laughs> you we love it. All right. So do you think one day there will ever be a time where we have a universal rule worldwide about internet usage and everything, like a time where mm. everybody will be under one roof, and if so, what do you think Ooh. that'll be like? <laughs> Ooh, good that's question. tough. So, so I think this is going to get down. I like how you said under one roof, um, because I think that it's going to have to be as far as, as that goes, which I can speculate later in this answer, <laughs> but as far as we can push it, it's going to depend on the rhetoric used. Yeah. Um, so if you say, like, we're trying to get everyone under one roof, then people are like, oh, that doesn't sound terrible. But, like, if someone says, this is the new world order like <laughs> that's not gonna go very well and so i think there's gonna have to be some significant rhetoric around how that is positioned because i think yeah. ultimately it would be better if we had at least some ground rules about the internet across various <laughs> countries i i mean we respect regional boundaries we've oh, talked yeah. about that all season and the regional needs and you know you may need to block a terrorist group here and maybe not there so there are regional needs but i would really hope that we can start pushing towards some universal ground rules, at least. We're never going to have a perfect, like, there's never going to be the book. Like, we're never going to have, like, this is the rules if you want the internet, um, unfortunately. But I do think that we will be pushing in that direction, particularly as English continues to be the lingua franca yeah. um, and the coda franca in that all code seems to be in English. Yep. Um, we will be pushing in that direction. But yeah, there's still going to be weird quirkiness, I think. But yeah, it's a great question. Yeah, and I think one of the challenges to get at the new world order side of that is that most of the time when those sorts of attempts have been made, for example, one of the distinctions that's been made in the Trans-Pacific Partnership has all to do with the enforcement of copyright law. And so one of the things that becomes difficult is a lot of these things we already know, I referenced the DMCA earlier, can and will be abused in all sorts of horrid ways. And so... Even ways that don't make sense. Even ways that make no sense at all. And so a lot of the resistance come because, well, we want to establish this global rule book, but the rule book we're trying to establish, the roof we're trying to get under is mostly a way for certain corporations to penalize everyone else at will. Well, that's a terrible
terrible roof to be under. And so finding ways that we can say, hey, we're going to guarantee these liberties for everyone, you might get there. Yeah. But I think you're going to and should continue to see resistance when the only kind of getting under the same roof you see is people saying, we're going to come punish you, we're going to get you for a copyright violation. Well... And, and I think ultimately it goes back to what we talked about in the body of the episode is yeah. that regional understandings of how the internet works are going to stymie that. Like, we're never going to get to a point of, like, maximum enlightenment. You know, <laughs> Descartes, I apologize. Oh. We're not getting there. Um, and, and I think that that regionalism is going to be a problem for a long, long time. Right. But it's the trade-off of the fact that regionalism has a lot of good things going for it. We don't yep. want provincialism, but we yep. like the good things that are distinctive to regions, regions whether that's South Korea or Zimbabwe or Bavaria. Right. I think we have time for one more question if anybody's interested. Go for it. So you talk about how America likes to sometimes take things over or <laughs> take things as their own. Um, and, you don't need the air quotes on that. <laughs> and that uh, a lot of times we think that our ways of doing things are the best practice ways of doing things. Yep. Um, is there anything off the top of your head you think other cultures, other nations, other countries do that we could learn from, um, things that we could take, laws, rules, ways yeah. of thinking that yeah. we could take and use? Yeah, so Kenya has digital cash um, that they're able to transfer, which is super rad, and I'm still waiting for someone in America to figure this out, um, because... We're getting there, but it's slow. It's slow, but it's... Kenya has had this for years now, yeah. and so some people have figured out various economic things better than us. Policy-wise, Amsterdam has really good policies, as John O'Nolan told us. There are several other countries that have really good um, internet freedoms. Yeah, for one I mentioned earlier in the show, the way a number of other countries have approached regulating and or actually employing much better market forces in getting telecom to people. So the way Britain and other countries have done what's called last loop unbundling so that there's active competition for providing internet service for being an ISP, that's gotten a lot of the countries that embrace the model Britain's used faster and much less expensive internet than is provided in the United States. So yeah. there are a lot of things. And South Korea just has faster and better internet because their internet is better and faster. Yeah, so, they basically um, said this is a national investment, we're going to do it and they did. Yeah, and so that's why they beat you all at League of Legends. Um, <laughs> that's they, one reason. They can click faster, <laughs> literally. <laughs> because of the internet. But yeah, there's a lot of ways that there's a, a lot of countries have put together some really interesting policies, but they all have detractors too, so there's yeah. no internet utopia out there. Um, although I'm sure that someone somewhere is like, no, we are the internet utopia. <laughs> So the music at the beginning of the episode was The House by Air Traffic Controller. We used it with their permission. Please don't use it without their permission, but jam out to it because it's awesome. Thanks to Andrew Fallows and Jeremy W. Sherman for continuing to sponsor the show. If you'd like to sponsor the show, you can pledge monthly at patreon.com slash winning slowly or give a one-off at cash.me slash dollar sign winning slowly. We are still giving 10% of the support you give us to the Internet Archive. We hope that if you haven't ever taken a look at archive.org, you'll do so this week and see ancient websites because it's fun. You can find some really weird things of mine. 
If you like the show, please rate and review us in iTunes, recommend us in your favorite podcast app directory, or just tell a friend in this country or another one. You can find show notes, whatever country you live in, for this episode with links to the things we talked about, as well as to the music at winningslowly.org slash 4.12. Last but not least, we love hearing from you. Send us your thoughts on Twitter at Winning Slowly or on Facebook or via email at hello at winningslowly.org. As always, thanks for listening. Go physics, because that's my background. If we don't understand that, the, the regulatory history of Europe's bleh, in Sweden, where they offer various levels of, I almost said, sanct- it's not sanct- it's, uh, you know, WikiLeaks, they offered him. Sanctuary? Sanctuary, that's the word, yep. Which chat? We, no, we- uh, hang on, not. It's WeChat. Yeah, it's WeChat. They own WeChat. No, no. What's, What's that? What's Thank that? you. That'll all get cut. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>